episode of Fusion and Hockey Podcast is sponsored by Sanborn's Boys. This new sports novel by Benji Mellers is available on Amazon. Order your copy of Sanborn's Boys today. So the NHL had said a little while ago that the earliest they were going to go back to training camp was July 10th, and now it looks like that is officially the target date for everyone to be back to work at training camp. Yeah, it's exciting. It was one of those proposed dates, and now it seems like it's it's really solidified, and I think phase two is really underway now. And so, you know, players are really getting back into it. Those that are already in their hometown cities, uh, they're back, they're, you know, they're gradually getting their way back to the, the training facilities. And so, yeah, just another step uh, in the NHL's program, right? This is a whole procedure to return to play. Uh, and it's definitely an exciting one to have yet another solid date confirmed. Yeah, uh, and... Um, we kind of got a little bit lucky here. Uh, we get lucky anytime some sort of news drops on a Saturday because we record the next day. Kind of uh, the opposite of when stuff drops on a Monday because then we have to wait six days. Anyway, last uh, yesterday evening, Sportsnet revealed that Las Vegas is officially going to be a hub city, which we had kind of all assumed would happen eventually, but now it's official. And they said to expect an official announcement from the NHL by June 22nd. And then there was another another funny little thing be, because uh, they had talked a little bit about maybe not wanting to have teams play in their own arenas. Uh, I don't think that's a big deal. Like they really wouldn't have an advantage, especially obviously without any fans in the building. Like I don't know what such a big advantage is of like being maybe more familiar with the city or the building. But either way, it looks a lot like the Eastern Conference teams are going to be playing in Las Vegas which means the Vegas Golden Knights and the Western Conference teams are going to be playing in whatever other hub city they pick. Yeah, that's an interesting decision. Uh, I'm not too certain. They're like, like, yeah, they, they mentioned maybe they don't want, you know, a whole city. Like, uh, they don't want the team playing in, the, in their in their own city. But I'm not sure how much of a difference that makes. Uh, so, I, I honestly, I don't, I don't get the whole point of the inconvenience. Like, the, yeah, so if they're putting the East, they're the Eastern teams all the way on, you know, they're sending them to Nevada, to Vegas. Um, I mean, uh, that's, that seems like a major inconvenience in terms of flight. You, you want to minimize the travel and it seems that you're you, now, now at this point, nobody can really go on a road trip uh, to Vegas. If you're an Eastern team, everybody's got to fly. Uh, and we know the dangers associated with that during this pandemic. And so, you know, it doesn't seem like an ideal solution, but I guess if the NHL, uh, if that's what they want to do, that's what they'll do, I guess. Uh, and so, yeah, Vegas, is the hub city for the East. I mean, I think it's fascinating that they picked Vegas. Uh, it just goes to show that uh, in a span of, what, three years uh, since this team has been, you know, since this team's inception, it, it. I know this is just, it seems like a small thing for the hub city, but it really seems like, you know, Vegas has become one of the marquee teams uh, for the NHL in just a span of a few years. Yeah, yeah, very exciting. Um, I Actually, I think I saw in a couple other spots that they were or at least like some of the front runners for the second hub city were a couple of Canadian cities. I'm not sure if Edmonton is still in there, despite that uh, that strong pitch they made a couple of weeks ago, but Toronto and Vancouver are both options. And uh, I'm not so sure. I think I saw that Vancouver, most people agree, is the safer option, but they still might be leading towards Toronto because, well, I'm not really sure why, but some people are speculating that Honestly, the time zone might play a big factor in it in terms of, you know, getting games on TV spread out and at a 
at a decent hour. Well, if that's the case, it's a really weird decision then to flip the conferences, right? Because Vegas, they're, I think they're in the Pacific time zone. If not, they're like very close to it. Uh, and meanwhile, if you're sending the Western teams to Toronto, then you're going to have, what, the 7 p.m. 7 p.m. game, but with the Western teams. And that's not what's going to draw the viewership here on the East Coast. So in terms of TV ratings, I'm not sure that's such a great idea to have them in Toronto. And, you know, it's been much, much publicized. The, the thing with these Canadian hub cities is right the the major obstacle right now is what the Canadian border restrictions right uh, yeah. they, they, there's been talk of relaxing uh, the quarant like the the regulation right now is that if you come over from the United States you have to have a mandatory two week quarantine period while they're thinking about maybe relaxing that just for the NHL but still it's still they haven't resolved that yet and honestly I don't I don't know if it's worth the hassle I I, I don't see why why don't you just pick uh, I, I know Columbus was one of the other teams that, that's on the you know, on the eastern side of the United States, that's been shouted out. Why don't you just take Columbus? Uh, and, and Toronto, it, it's right now, I think if you look statistically with the pandemic, is doing worse than Montreal right now in terms of the number of cases. So they haven't had it totally shut down yet either. Uh, so I don't know. I, I, you say there's talk in Toronto. I don't know if that's such a great idea. And frankly, this this whole switching of the conference uh, in terms of TV ratings, is, it's kind of confusing because I, I, I don't really think it works for the ratings. Here's an, an interesting aspect. Uh, that I've been wanting to touch on actually for a little while now in, in terms of like the, the spacing of the games because during the play-in round while the round robin is going on between the top four seeds you're probably or at least on some days going to want to have three games in one arena in one day so uh, I don't exactly know what they're going to do like between the games in terms of keeping things sanitary but I would imagine that they're going to have to, I don't know, disinfect the locker rooms, the benches somehow. So you might have to spread out the start of games by, what, four hours, four and a half hours? I'm not really sure. So let's say you've got all the Eastern teams in Las Vegas, and you've got three games to play in one day. And you've also got to, you want to line up like um, the times that the games will be played on the Eastern time zone with, you know, an appropriate hour. You don't want games at like 10 a.m. or 10 p.m. So let's say you want the games to air in the East Coast at like, let's say, 12 p.m., 4 p.m., and 8 p.m. Then that would mean that, wait, I mean, sometimes I mix up the time zones. That would mean that you have to get the um, the first game started at 9 a.m. Pacific time. Did I do that right or did I go the wrong way? No, that's the right, that's the right idea. Okay, you would have to start at 9 a.m. Pacific time, which I think is honestly probably out of the question. So let's say you shift it back an hour to like 1 p.m., 5 p.m., 9 p.m. Then you get there at 10 a.m. That's a little bit more reasonable. I don't think you're going to want to air any games, any East Coast, Eastern Conference games on the East Coast any later than 9 p.m. So that's something they're going to have to work around. Maybe they can squeeze it in like less than four hours apart, or maybe they'll just have to suck it up and never do more than two games in one day in, in one building. Yeah, the scheduling thing, it's, yeah, you're, you're right to bring it up. It's certainly going to be interesting how they handle it. Um, this three-game-a-day, three-games-a-day scenario, I really don't think it's realistic when you bring up those kind of times. Um, this is what makes this whole, you know, sending the Eastern teams to the West so confusing, right? I don't want to watch the Habs uh, play at 10 a.m. local time, 1, uh, 1 p.m. here. Uh, that doesn't, it just doesn't really make any sense. Uh, I don't understand why they don't just, you know, send everybody to the East. And then, then you can have, you know, 1 p.m. games. They had 1 p.m. games in, in a regular season, right? Uh, so I don't think that would be such a problem. But you you certainly can't have games starting at 9 a.m. local time. That makes no sense whatsoever. Uh, and so, yeah, it's weird, this whole scheduling thing. Uh, I, I really don't 
like this this whole time imbalance when it comes to you know I keep saying it the TV uh, I like it just really doesn't make any sense uh, because of just how imbalanced it's three hours apart it might not seem like a lot but you know when it comes to viewership uh, and, and just hockey games the timing of these things it just it doesn't make much sense. Yeah, uh, the only way I could see this Eastern Conference in the Vegas Hub City make sense is if they are have a very strong hunch that they'll be picking another West Coast team to be a Hub City because then you have you have everyone on the West Coast and there's nothing you can really do about time zones. But if they do end up picking a Toronto or Columbus or Chicago sort of team, then it's probably really going to throw everything out of balance. Yeah, I really, I this is one of those you know I've been talking, I've been praising the NHL recently about you know this this string of decisions. This one it, it might seem small, but it, honestly, I the logistics of it. If once you once you start really looking at it, uh, like we have been, it just it's really kind of confusing. Um, like you pick Vegas as a hub city, fine. Why don't you just send the Western team? Like yeah, we talked about. There's no real advantage for the Vegas players, um, it, especially with the lack of fans. And so why don't you just keep them on the East Coast? Uh, and then we can just have the regular times. I just, I really do not understand this decision. Maybe we'll see some sort of justification, but likely not. Uh, and I, I, I don't know. I just, I just don't really like it. It's one of those decisions that seems small and trivial. But uh, I mean, this whole time zone thing—it's kind of throwing me in for a loop. Here's the other thing: if you pick uh, two Western Conference cities to um to be the hub cities say vegas and i don't know it doesn't really matter vancouver edmonton chicago dallas any of them if you pick them then well there's definitely going to be a team that's playing in their home arena because all of those cities that i just mentioned their teams are in the playoffs so if that's something you really want to avoid then you got to pick a city from the eastern conference i don't think it's something worth avoiding uh yeah but that's just yes an angle that we hadn't really considered yeah uh, and I, I'm not too sure what's going on there. Uh, also, moving on, I want to talk about something that hasn't really been discussed when it comes to return of play. Uh, you talked about, you know, potentially disinfecting uh, the arenas and all that, and I'm wondering, what is the NHL doing? They haven't really talked about it much in terms of safety protocols. Uh, and so for the players in particular, right, are they going to be locked down, for example, for those Eastern Conference teams? Are they going to be locked down in Vegas? Uh, are they not going to be able to see their families? Uh, and this is something that we've seen is a, of great concern to the players, right? They don't want to be, they don't want to not see their family for two, three months uh, if they end up making a deep uh, playoff run. And it's something that we see has come up in terms of the, of the conversation in, you know, in basketball, for example, uh, where they have started talking about it, and their plan is a bit different, where they're going to lock all the, te- they're going to send all the teams to Orlando to play a bunch. And recently. There's been a lot of backlash within the players for this plan of, you know, severely restricting movement uh, within Orlando. And so a lot of these players, you know, they might not see their families. And so we're seeing uh, players, we're seeing, you know, groups of players, notably one led by uh, Kyrie Irving, who they're saying they don't want to play. Kyrie Irving in particular, he's definitely not playing. But uh, the, the others, like in this group, they're saying, you know, if... We can't see our families, and also they they have problems with you know the the whole Black Lives Matter movement that's happening at the same time. So they don't think it's entirely appropriate to be playing uh, in lockdown while that's going on. Um, while there's a lot of discussion over you know what what's going to be the deal there, and then these players, a lot of them saying they just won't play. And then there was a survey, uh, there was a poll of these top players, like the top 50, 40 players, and two thirds of them said they would opt out under the current protocols that have been proposed by the NBA, and so. Uh, moving our focus back to the NHL, 
uh, like what can we expect uh, and how do you think they can really get this? Do you think they'll be able to, to find the protocol that'll go over smoother than what, than what we're seeing in the NBA? Uh, this seems like a really big issue that the NHL's kind of uh, tried to maybe sweep under the rug a little bit, but inevitably is going to come up again uh, before before we return to the playoffs. I think Nick Foligno said something about really not being excited to be away from his family for an extended period of time. Um, I th- think like even before this uh, this plan was officially confirmed, like a 2014 playoff, I think Phil Deneau and Brennan Gallagher, or at least Phil Deneau, said something in the, in the same vein. So this is definitely going to be a problem that they're going to need to find a solution to. Uh, basically, at the end of the day, if players don't want to go, then the NHL can't force them to go, not only because issues with you know not wanting to be locked in for a couple months or being away from their family, but health concerns. Uh, obviously, Max Domi and Luke Cunning with, uh, both have diabetes as the extreme example of that, but any one of the NHL players would be totally justified in not wanting to go play under this format just out of fear that they might get COVID-19 and pass it on to their family. So that's definitely a problem the NHL is going to have to have to face. And then there's the whole, a whole other thing kind of with say a player decides they don't want to go. Um, do you automatically rule them out for the remainder of the playoffs? Like what if, what if a team on one of the, the lower seeds, like, I don't know, uh, whatever, any of them, uh, have one of their top players decides not to go, say even Nick Foligno on the Blue Jackets maybe, and then the Blue Jackets happen to make a deep run, second round, third round. Is Nick Foligno allowed to come back, or has he has he been ruled out now forever? Like I feel like you wouldn't want to play around with players, you know, being at home and then coming and joining the team halfway through. So it's going to be a very complicated situation. Yeah, I think those are all valid questions, and it just seems like you said the NHL has kind of skirted these uh, answering them. I mean, uh, they they have made a bunch of decisions uh, recently, and I, I think a lot of it is you know optics. They want to look like they're you know the first league, and and the coverage has been that you know just that that the NHL has been you know really the leader in terms of making decisions for their playoffs and all that. But when it comes to these safety protocols, I really think they are lagging. Uh, and I think they're behind on all the leaks, frankly, uh, because it just seems that they've been making all the other service level decisions, uh, like, you know, your 24 teams and whatnot, and your hub city and your length of series and all that. But it just seems like they haven't addressed this whole safety protocol thing, because I think when they're looking at it, uh, I, I really think we might be looking at a potential like a real obstacle in terms of return to play. I think this might be the biggest one. Uh, not, it's not determining the number of teams in the playoffs, but I think, you know, figuring out what kind of protocol it is uh, for, for, you know, players that are immunosuppressed uh, and what happens if somebody actually, you know, if somebody contracts the virus, what happens then if a number of, of group of players uh, contracts the virus? Questions like that. It just seems like the, the league has totally avoided talking about them or addressing them, and I don't really think they have any answers at this point. We've both expressed concern about uh, Bill Daly saying that just because, like, say a player uh, tests positive for the virus during the playoffs, that doesn't necessarily mean it's all going to be canceled. We've both obviously been, you know, not on board with that idea. Uh, And say the NHL does go through with it, say a player tests positive and they don't cancel, that's where I think we start to see probably that player's team or at least most of their players saying yeah uh, I'm done I want to go home or at least not play anymore stay isolated in my hotel room and probably lots of other players too so maybe just by by that happening is how the the playoffs would get canceled uh but I honestly don't know 
Yeah, it, it remains to be seen, and it's just it's this whole situation is completely unprecedented, right? All these crazy ideas flying out. Uh, it's really there's there's no template for this, right? And they're just trying to figure it out. And so yeah, we'll see what happens. We'll see how the players react, and I think that's really the crux of everything here is how do the players feel? Um, it, it's obvious that uh, you know that we've talked about this, the attitude in hockey of you know I want to team first, really team first. Well, we'll see how how deep that goes. Uh, when it comes to this pandemic, and if somebody does contract it, uh, what happens then? Uh huh. So um, there was another uh, kind of big piece of news that kind of got you know swept swept under the rug in general for the for the past week. But uh, I think it's definitely worth talking about now, and it's to do with Auto Senators owner Eugene Melnick. Um, I am not a hundred percent brushed up on the entire situation. You probably are more familiar with it than I am. But he was uh, kind of sort of stealing from his own charity, or what is formerly his own charity, I guess, guess because the Ottawa Senators and the Ottawa Senators Foundation parted ways, which, honestly, before this happened, I wouldn't have thought that was possible. Yeah, honestly, uh, I, I didn't know. I, I didn't think so either. Uh, when I saw the headline, I kind of had to do a double take uh, because, yeah, just the concept. Is, is frankly only something that the Senators could possibly dream up, dream up uh, <laughs> out of all the possible franchises. I mean, <laughs> I mean to have your foundation split up with a team. I mean, frankly, it's it's just it's an absurd idea. Uh, and yeah, only the Senators could manage such a clown show. And so yeah, the the news story seems to have been that uh, basically the the licensing or agreement for the foundation, like for like this foundation that the foundation has in order to use the Sens logo and the Sens name has expired and they've decided not to uh, not to renew it for a number of reasons. But uh, it, it, it seems that uh, once again, Eugene has been up to his meddling ways. Uh, and this time on the foundation th- side of things, uh, there was you know a report that came out when it came to uh, the certain uh, organ donation fu- uh, fundraiser. And I think they raised like a million dollars. But in the end, you know, like seven hundred grand or something was like was was uh, actually allocated seven hundred fifty thousand of those, that one million was allocated to fundraising costs, and so in the end, I think they don- donated actually like five thousand uh, dollars out of that million uh, to organ donation, and so uh, you know it's like a half a cent for every dollar that was donated to organ donation, and so that kind of clowns that uh, you you only see it from the senators and this whole news story. Uh, is is weird. It's it's it frankly came out of nowhere. Uh, but I don't know. It seems pretty serious. And when you're dealing with numbers this size, uh, it's certainly a concern. Uh, when it comes to you know these kind of weird money things, we might see the potentially you know the government money services, the the CRA get involved because uh, I mean those numbers. It's certainly shocking. We've made fun of Eugene Melnick plenty of times for for you know being a terrible owner meddling too much in hockey affairs uh but this kind of seems like it takes all that to the next level where it's, it's this kind of seems like an evil thing to do basically stealing from your own charity and treating the charity so poorly charging them rent for for where they work for their offices uh that make them leave it just seems like a crazy evil villain kind of thing to do and I think we mentioned this a little bit a little while ago. Whenever the last Ottawa Senators scandal was, wasn't probably wasn't much too long ago. Uh, This should be, at least from a hockey perspective, an exciting time for for Sens fans. You know, they got a a pretty decent 
crop of young players, Thomas Shabbat, Brady Kachuk, Eric Branstrom, and they're probably going to get way better at the next draft. They've got those two high, really high picks of their own, another first-rounder, and four second-rounders. So they're going to add a lot of great talent to their prospect pool. But uh, then again, there's this whole underlying question, like how are you possibly going to put it all together with such a maniacal owner at the top of it all? Like he's going to stick around for the foreseeable future. The only way I think they could get out of it is if somehow – the other owners all team up to, to buy to buy the Sens off of him, and like the NHL owns the Sens, kind of like they did to the the Coyotes for a while there, uh, earlier on a couple of years ago. But uh, but yeah, it's a really rough position for Sens fans to be in because uh, it's because we know, well, we've been I guess somewhat lucky with with Jeff Molson, but I mean this was kind of the case with the Blackhawks in the early 2000s and the Leafs with Harold Ballard for a long time. That when you have a bad owner. Uh, it's going to be nearly impossible to have a successful hockey team. Yeah, really. This is this whole thing, this whole saga with Eugene Melnick. Frankly, it's not good for this franchise, and it's not good for the league. Uh, when you have such a terrible owner, and he's basically casting a dark cloud over the entire franchise, the entire fan base. Uh, and so, you know, I think I think we're not we're not quite there uh, in terms of you know seeing the other owners oust him. But, you know, every time we see this kind of garbage come out of Ottawa, uh, the, the first hashtag that pops up on trending uh, is hashtag Melnick out, right? And you just see the just just the, the, the total and complete resentment that the fan base has for this owner. Uh, and, you know, it shows in the attendance. It shows in the revenue. Uh, you know, he, he says he's losing money. Well, yeah, because nobody wants to support this guy. Uh, you know, he's all the different scandals, you know, the, the whole... Not to mention, you know, the whole arena thing, right? The, the arena is so far away right now from the actual city. And there was this whole conflict, uh, you know, trying to build a new arena. And so, yeah, it just seems that, uh, I don't know. I, I wouldn't think it's out of the question at what, like, at some time in the future where they end up trying to remove Melnick as the owner. Uh, but we'll see. I think we haven't gotten yet that point. But if, you know, the, att- the attendance has really cratered in Ottawa. Nobody really goes to the games. They're among the worst in the league. And so if it continues to go like that, if the fans continue to ice him out, I don't know. Maybe we see some. Maybe he's forced to sell just because he's completely bleeding money. Uh, and hopefully that's what happens because you know, as much as it is entertaining uh, to watch all this and talk about it, like every month it seems uh, about the new shenanigans that this guy is up to. I mean, it's not great for the league and it's not great for hockey in Ottawa. And yeah, it should be an exciting time for the Ottawa fan base. But it just seems that their number one preoccupation. It's not Thomas Shabbat. It's not Brady Kachuk. It's Eugene Melnick. And that's not right. Uh, and meddling ownership is, yeah, as you said, it's usually the, it's, it's often the root cause of, you know, organizational shenaniganery. Uh, and that's what it is right now in Ottawa. And it's just the tree that keeps on giving. Uh, you know, every freaking month it's a new thing. And I cannot believe he took it to this level. This whole foundation thing is absolutely, you know, it's hilarious. That's what it is. Even when the Senators were making runs to the conference finals in 2017, and like Eric Carlson was honestly in the conversation for the best player in the world, at least during that playoff run, um, they had very poor attendance, even in their games, although in the third round, which is crazy to think about for, you know, passionate city, passionate hockey city, just because like the arena is so inconvenient for, for everyone to get to. So basically, what I think what I'm trying to say is Eugene Melnick. Like, I don't know exactly how long he's been owning the team for, but this didn't really come out of nowhere. It was just kind of not a main talking point because the Sens, Sens were a pretty decent team for a good stretch of time. 
but as soon as they kind of fell off the fell off the map and honestly right after the Matt Duchesne trade kind of you know tanked and never won a game again which is a bit of a bit of an exaggeration of course uh that's when all this Eugene Melnick stuff kind of came came ahead into the spotlight when the team wasn't doing well anymore and he kind of came under fire so I think if the Sens maybe are they can't manage to you know get back on track if they stay near the bottom of the league and we keep seeing these types of scandals come out on like a I don't know every couple months or so from the Sens standpoint, then uh, eventually I think we're gonna get one to one that kind of breaks the camel's back and uh, to a point of no return where like I don't know if it'll be like a a mass boycott by Sens fans or anything like that, but I don't think that Eugene Melnick is going to stick around indefinitely like I might have implied before. I think it's probably only a matter of time. Yeah, he doesn't even, I, from what I see, he's not even really, you know, totally enamored with the city of Ottawa. It just seems that this guy has always has had his eye on, you know, the city of Toronto. Uh, I, I, I know, like, that's, 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 his, that's his number one, you know, his golden prize. He wants a franchise in Toronto. And so, you know, it just seems like Ottawa is his second choice. And he treats it that way, and this whole team is an absolute farce. Uh, so yeah, I, I, you know, I, I hope he finally gets ousted, and maybe we can see some stable leadership. It's always good to see stable leadership everywhere in any situation, and I'm always rooting for that. Uh, but yeah, we'll, we'll see. And uh, you know, we can only we can only guess. You know, even if we guess right now, we probably would not be able to guess his next uh, this next scandal, whatever it's gonna be. No matter what we guess it's probably going to be 15 times more absurd. Because if you told me that this guy was basically trying to embezzle money out of his foundation uh, two months ago, I would have laughed you out of the room. But here we are, um, you know, three months into a pandemic, and this story comes out, and uh, I I mean, it's unbelievable. Uh, I would just like to say that if any time in the next, say, three years, the Sens make the playoffs, uh, Pierre Dorian should officially be crowned the greatest GM of all time because uh, to be able to succeed like that with such such an incompetent boss, uh, that's, that's worthy of praise. And I think, honestly, if you look at the, the trades and maybe a couple of the signings that Pierre Dorian has made over the, over the past little while or so, uh, I think, all things considered, he's done a very good job. Yeah, you know what? Not bad at all. I gotta say, uh, you know, he was a much mocked general manager just a few years ago. But I think the majority of that of his bad moves can be chalked up to you know Eugene Melnick pulling the puppet strings. Uh, but yeah, you talk about you know the the different hauls that he's gotten for you know selling off. Eric Brandstrom comes to mind from the Mark Stone trade. But just all the different trades in general. Um, yeah, I think he's done a very good job for himself. Uh, and uh, yeah, absolutely. If the Sens do make the playoffs. Fuck it. Uh, let's let's give him the GM GM. What's the name of the award? The GM of the Year award. I don't even know what. Yeah, it is. But they uh, they recently named it after uh, Jim Gregory, I think it was. Okay, so let's give him the Jim Gregory award. Uh, if if Ottawa ever makes it out of this miserable situation with Eugene uh, Melnick still as the owner, yeah, absolutely. Pierre Dorian. Uh, I mean, I think we should give him the award this year just for having to deal with that guy as his boss. Uh, sure. and, and because you know the award is so subjective, we might as well give it to him right now. But uh, yeah, I think uh, Pierre Dorian. Uh, they said you know this this job tanked his, his chances at any other job. I really don't think that's the case anymore. Uh, because yeah, shout out to him. It seems like he's done a fantastic job given the god awful cars that he's been dealt. Yeah. Uh, so the other the other prominent piece of news this week there was actually there's actually quite a little bit to to discuss. We we were planning to do our um, 
to fill out awards ballots on this episode because we weren't planning on having this announcement about the the Vegas Hub City and such to to drop last night. So uh, maybe we'll we'll say that for next week, unless there's even more stuff. We'll get to it eventually. But uh, the other thing that happened earlier this week was the creation of the Diversity Alliance. Um, seven uh, black NHL players, two former players, Akeem Alou and Joel Ward, and five former players, Evander Kane, Trevor Daly, Matt Dumbo, Wayne Simmons, and Chris Stewart, uh, form, formed this group that is going to uh, battle racism and discrimination in hockey. Uh, they came under fire a little bit right off the bat for not including any any women immediately. But uh, it does seem like they are on track to to expand this 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 alliance in the near future. So uh, I'm personally I'm I'm looking forward to seeing what they do, and I'm really happy that this this group isn't affiliated with the NHL. Yeah, it's good that it's independent. Whenever you see something, you know, that the NHL does, uh, you you really start to question the integrity of the thing. But yes, it's an independent group, uh, and yeah, hopefully the, the the one thing that we can hope from the NHL is that they end up listening and, and to any recommendation that this group of players has, uh, whether it's, you know, any statements that they that they ask for or, you know, potentially even some actions that they need uh, in order to promote uh, hockey for minorities and in particular for black people. Uh, and so, yeah, excited to see what this, this group has to offer. Uh, and hopefully it's something that we'll see, you know, in, in the long term and, and, and that will actually make some real difference in the hockey world. Yeah, I really think it will because... Uh, unfortunately, it's probably going to happen again some point, uh, some point in the future that we see a situation like what happened with Bill Peters back uh, in however long ago that was uh, with Akeem Alou in the AHL. Uh, some sort of similar situation to that arise, even if it's not to do necessarily with the NHL and one of the other North American pro leagues. Maybe one, like in junior, it's, it's very possible or somewhere else in youth hockey that to have a group like this uh, with, a, with a big influence they could really make a big difference in uh, in the fight for justice in a situation like that. Yeah, I think I think what we can we can potentially see with this group is you know really really holding the NHL accountable uh, for its different statements and whatever. Uh, and so that's what I, I want to see this group because it, it, what we've seen in the past in the NHL with all sorts of issues, not just you know the, just not just with the black community and, and racism, is that you know we see a lot of spineless statements. And hopefully that this diversity alliance, what they'll do is, you know, you know, just really push the NHL into one direction, which is, you know, take a stand for once uh, and be in this in this instance with this issue, be anti-racist uh, and then don't just come out with some nonsense uh, that you post, uh, you know, not just a small statement. And, and that's what we can hope for. It's the accountability. Right. Uh, and yeah, that's what it is. It's to hold the league accountable uh, for its actions and for its statements. We haven't really talked about the the video the NHL put, put on Twitter with Tyler Sagan, uh, kind of promoting him going to the uh, the marches, the protests. But uh, it was taken down recently. I don't know if any of you saw it, but basically, I was criticized for not really discussing the actual issue at hand that was being protest, but basically just praising Tyler Sagan. And kind of, you know, being a whole commercial for the NHL. See, look, look at our player. Look at one of our star players going to a protest. What a great guy he is. Look how much everyone loves him. And it was really in poor taste. And they took it down uh, after not long. I think it was maybe just a couple days. And I, I have no proof of this. I'm just kind of speculating. But I could see a situation where maybe the diversity alliance that had just been made, uh, 
maybe contacted the NHL in private and explained why the video was problematic and encouraged them to take it down. Uh, maybe encourage them to make a statement too, which they haven't done and I don't expect them to. But that's the kind of situation where I could see this diversity alliance really coming in handy. Now, I hope so, because the NHL absolutely fumbled this instant. Uh, I didn't see the video either, but, you know, the way you described it seemed to be what it was. Uh, and, uh, yeah, just a really weird, weird concept from the NHL. As you said, they kind of turned it into a commercial for the league, uh, and that's just sort of wrong in so many ways. Uh, you know, you're just you're not really saying anything about the movement. You're just saying, hey, look at this white guy uh, who happens to be a star in the league. Uh, and, uh, you know, just, just it just it was completely off. Uh, and yeah, hopefully in the future, this kind of, you know, this kind of fumble, this kind of, uh, this kind of, it just makes me feel icky inside this kind of weird action. Uh, hopefully this is, this is the kind of accountability I'm asking for is, you know, we don't see this kind of weird thing because to get that kind of video, uh, onto the Twitter page, no matter for how long that had to go through a lot of people from, you know, the people who shot the footage to, uh, you know, the editors, to, you know, some, there's got to be some oversights. A bunch of people said, yes, let's post this to Twitter. Uh, and then they pulled it down just like uh, a short while later. And so, you know, it's this kind of it's this kind of thing that we want to avoid. And hopefully that's what the Diversity Alliance will help prevent. Mm-hmm. Uh, all right. So before we get into this week's uh, these prospect profiles for this week uh, or whatever we want to call it, uh, there are two little things that I want to mention. First. Yasperi Kakanyemi posted on his Instagram a picture of him playing tennis. So uh, I think this is a little bit of positive news for Habs fans because we weren't sure if he would be ready to go for the playoffs because of his spleen injury. But this seems like a, a, a positive, positive little thing. Step in the right direction for him. We may, may see him going up against the Penguins, hopefully, by, uh, I don't know, August or whenever it starts. Uh, second thing, um, I don't know if you would have anything you would like to say about the MLB draft because we talked a little bit about uh, about the Super Bowl when it happened and this is another little piece of sports news. Watched I watched personally the first five picks. I saw uh, Austin Martin, who is allegedly, I don't know, num- ranked number two or three consensus, fall to the Blue Jays at number five. And uh, and then I left and went to do other things. So would you, do you have anything to add on that? Uh, not particularly. I mean, the, the thing with the MLB draft, right, it's, it's really like we're talking about. We talk about sometimes the NHL, right? It takes years for these guys to develop. The MLB draft is that, but taken to the extreme. I mean, these some of these guys, these first round picks, you just you never hear of them again. They just kind of fall off the map. Uh, and so, yeah, the ML. You talk about a crapshoot in the NHL uh, and and the NFL. These players, they they come in game one, uh, ready to play. While the total opposite of that spectrum is the MLB draft. And you know, you see this hype. First of all, I'm not surprised that he turned it off after the first five picks, you know, after the Blue Jays uh, went. Uh, and it seems that they got a steal with Austin Martin. But you know what? I wouldn't be totally surprised if Austin Martin, uh, first of all, great name, by the way, Austin Martin. That's just, it's, it's a car, right? And uh, <laughs> it's fantastic. But, uh, you know, the, the, the thing with even the top picks, right? These guys, they're not ready for the MLB and they won't be for, what, three, four, five, six years. You know, I wouldn't be surprised if we never heard of Austin Martin again. Uh, you know, it's just, uh, yeah, so that's why I don't totally follow uh, the MLB draft. It just seems that it's one of those things where uh, I won't really hear these names again for the next four years. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, it's something sporting uh, and uh, good for the Blue Jays, I guess, getting a guy who was supposed to go second overall, dropped the number five, 
fantastic name, and apparently he's a fantastic hitter. So uh, good for them. And uh, I, I, other than that, honestly, I don't really have much to say with the MLB draft because really other than Austin Martin, nothing, nothing really meaningful seems to have happened. I learned something new about the MLB draft a couple of days ago. Apparently, they're not allowed to trade draft picks. Uh, I don't know what that's about. That just seems like a, a random, random nonsensical thing. Because I'm pretty sure in every other sport, uh, draft picks are always traded. Why, why is it different in baseball? I, I actually don't know. Um, I, I hadn't heard about it until you just mentioned it. Uh, maybe something to look into. Uh, but yeah, that's, that's, that's certainly a strange rule. Um, I know the, the MLB, they also have a different, they have like two different drafts. There's another one called the Rule 5 draft, where they end up picking players that have, you know, that have already been rostered uh, on a team. Uh, and I know there are very specific rules uh, that go on with that. But the MLB, let me tell you, it's a weird league. Uh, and I mean, look, I, I just want to touch on something that's been in the news recently with the MLB. Uh, it just seems that uh, there's a huge fight going on with, between the union uh, and the league. And the MLB, their opening day was supposed to be in April. Obviously, that's been postponed indefinitely. But it seems that uh, it's these conversations, they, they, they've been shooting proposals back at each other, shooting them down uh, very much in public. You know, we've seen, you know, wide sweeping public statements, uh, you know, of the Player Association in particular condemning the league. Uh, and basically what it's come to is the, the just the Player Association just this past day, I think it was yesterday or the day before, they announced, you know, we're done with the negotiations Give us a date. We'll be there. Uh, but these negotiations, they're done. Uh, so, I mean, f- absolutely fascinating. Uh, you know, another thing with the MLB, right? They don't have a salary cap. They have some luxury tax, but it's huge. They're spending, you know, we see like hundreds of millions of dollars. Like, I think I think Mike Trout had like a $300 million contract. Absolutely absurd. You could possibly imagine that in the NHL uh, or in the NFL. But, uh, I mean, they don't have any sort of revenue sharing. And so... When it comes to these sort of, you know, labor negotiations, definitely something to follow. Uh, and this pandemic seems to have really lit a fire under everybody. Uh, I know their CBA is coming up. It's it's going to expire either next year or the year after. Uh, something to follow there, even if you don't follow football. I mean, the beef that's about to go down over there, uh, the owners, they want to go to revenue sharing. You know, all the players want their, these contracts are fully guaranteed. They want their, they want to keep these contracts. So yeah, serious beef in the MLB. Uh, and from an entertainment perspective, definitely something else. This, this is honestly, this, this kind of beef is honestly more exciting than the MLB regular season, which can often be a 162 game snooze fest. Uh, but yeah, serious news, uh, coming out of the MLB. And, uh, I mean, these might, honestly, this is the, probably the most intense sort of back and forth weeks I've seen, uh, in any sort of sports in a long time. Uh, I just have one request for the MLB for their next CBA is that they uh, change the rule about trading traffics and then allow them to. Actually, while you were talking, uh, I'm going to be honest, I was looking stuff up a little bit uh, about why the MLB, why they don't let the players trade draft picks. And one thing I found was the original concern, this is from Bleacher Report, the concern originally was that teams that couldn't afford to sign high-profile draft choices would simply trade away those picks and the rich would get richer. Uh, which is, uh, I don't know, kind of seems like a little bit of a galaxy braining there. This article's from 2010, so maybe it's a little outdated. I don't know when this started from the MLB. Um, but I don't want to make too much dead air looking for any different answer here. But uh, Bleacher Report says that that's how it all started. So that that's your answer, I guess. Huh. 
That's interesting. And that Rule 5 draft that I mentioned, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll just bring it up quickly here. Uh, it's a separate draft, and it allows clubs without a full 40-man roster to select certain non-40-man roster players from other clubs. And if not all clubs uh, do pick a player, but if you do, you have to pay $100,000 uh, to the club from which you pick the player. Uh, and, I mean, this is just weird overall. Apparently, the whole goal of this is you try to prevent young players. Uh, you try to prevent teams from stockpiling these young players uh, in, in the minor leagues uh, when other teams would have them play uh, in the actual MLB. I mean, that's, that's, that's certainly that's something wow. else. That's something we don't see uh, in any other league. Nothing, nothing even remotely similar to it. But, uh, yeah, that's the Rule 5 draft uh, from the MLB. They have two drafts. So yeah, that's been that's been MLB talk for this week. <laughs> that kind of sounds like uh, a similar idea to waivers in the NHL. Like you have this player in the NHL. If you want to send him to the minors, then first uh, you got to see if anyone else wants him on their NHL team instead. But it's not really the same thing because this is this kind of seems like um, if this is like if you're, we're talking about like younger players, prospect level players that would be on say ELCs in the NHL then in the major leagues, it's just kind of like, don't stockpile too much young talent, don't get too good of a prospect pool because you're going to lose some of them in this, this funky, weird draft. So, yeah, there's a there's a lot that's very strange about the major leagues, and I feel like a lot of it is just rules that have been around for a really long time that no one ever questions because they seem to be uh, traditionalist-leaning over in the, the baseball world. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's the thing with baseball, right? You look at, like, nothing has changed. Like really, not much has changed over the last what hundred something years, hundred fifty years in the eighteen hundreds. Uh, I mean, a lot of these rules have still been intact, and that's the thing with baseball. I think that's what a lot of people like about it. Nothing really changes. You come in on any given day, and you'll see the same boring snooze fest, uh, and maybe you'll take a nap on the couch. Uh, but uh, yeah, that's baseball for you. I mean, uh, a lot of it is weird. A lot of weird rules. Uh, and with this player management stuff, let me tell you, it's something else. It's something special, and uh, yeah, it's something. It's definitely something to look into if you're if you're bored during this quarantine. Uh, Google the MLB and see what they're up to. All right, is it time to learn about a couple new draft prospects? Okay, let's go. Let's go into our German forward, shall we? Yes. Yeah. All right. So this week we decided to profile not Tim Stutzla, uh, the other two. German players, high-profile German players in this draft, who both may go in the first round, wingers who actually played on Tim Stutzel's line at the World Juniors, John Jason Paterka, who, according to EliteProspects.com, which I would tend to believe, was actually born on the exact same day as me, January 14th, 2002. And the other one is uh, Lucas Reichel, uh, another winger, left winger. Uh, Paterka plays the right side, it would appear, more often. And uh, they both spent this season in the DEL, the Deutsch Elite League, which is a professional men's league in Germany. Yeah, it's something interesting with both of these prospects is that they've really, both of them have kind of rocketed up uh, scouting boards just this past year. I mean, both of them, they weren't, they were, they were probably in consideration for maybe like a second to third round pick. But uh, with their international play, and this is for both of them, this is what seems to have really stood out is how they did in the World Junior Championship this past year when they were really playing uh, against draft-level prospects because they are playing in the DEL, which is, you know, a pretty obscure league. I mean, uh, in terms of scouting, not much scouting going on there because you rarely see players come out of the DEL 
because you rarely see German players uh, in the draft. Uh, this is part of the German wave that I think we've mentioned before. Um, so, I mean, uh, so yeah, both, both of these guys uh, did great in the, in the World Junior Championships next to Tim Stutzla, uh, and they they really have, it, it just seems like it's been, you know, a sort of, yeah, it just seems that they've, they've had a great last year, uh, and this is why they're both in consideration for the first round. I don't, you know, I would be surprised if I saw, in particular, if I saw Reichel uh, go in the first round, but, you know, I wouldn't be shocked. Uh, and if, especially if he goes, you know, maybe very late in the first round, uh, you know, it wouldn't be a complete reach. So these are two wingers who uh, appear to have, to be uh, offensive-minded players, a uh, little bit, go about it a little different ways with, uh, they both have holes, we'll say, in their defensive game. Uh, Paterka offensively is, uh, seems like to be more of a flashy player. Maybe like more and more skill set, more vision is what his uh, his game depends on. And in a, in a men's league like he's been playing in, it's kind of hard for a player like that to succeed, especially as an 18-year-old. Uh, and Lucas Reichel, on the other hand, is a little bit more of a, I guess, maybe a little more of like a, a physical kind of power forward type, maybe. Uh, do you think that's fair to say from from what you found? Who and maybe a player like that who doesn't necessarily yeah. Maybe I was gonna say a player like that who maybe doesn't doesn't necessarily depend on a high skill level in order to generate offense. That's why his uh, his stats are a little bit better than Paterka's, even though Paterka's generally seems to have a higher ceiling. Uh, actually, I would actually disagree on that Luka Reichel, uh, Lucas Reichel evaluation. Uh, from what I've seen, this guy lacks in physicality, and he would be, you know, not the opposite of a power forward. Uh, this guy seems to rely a lot on his speed. Uh, and, you know, in order to generate offense, what he does is, you know, he doesn't do the flash, but he just kind of goes to the right place at the right time. He'll find the open space. And so you'll see this guy not... Uh, with J.J. Paterka, this guy is an absolute sniper. Uh, that's his main strength in the offensive zone. This guy can shoot. Uh, meanwhile, Lucas Reichel, you'll see him more, you know, finding the open space. Maybe you'll see him for a backdoor tapping, that kind of thing. And the problem with him, actually, is his physicality. This guy's small, and he doesn't really play physically at all, and that's probably one of the main concerns with this guy. Uh, you know, he is shaky defensively, as you mentioned, uh, and that plays into it because, you know, he he... The control with him is that he'll get easily pushed off uh, the puck when he transitions to the NHL because he is on the smaller side. Uh, I think he had like, you know, he just really didn't hit anybody. Uh, and uh, he didn't really take any penalties. That That is a positive thing, but also goes to show this guy doesn't really hit. Uh, he doesn't really, you know, he doesn't really play with physicality. And so that's, that, that is the concern with him. Uh, and so I wouldn't say he's a power forward. Uh, this guy, you know, it looks like he's more of a speed guy uh, more than anything uh, in terms of, you know, creating play in the offensive zone. So so it seems like maybe instead of like maybe power forward wasn't the, the, the right wording, I was thinking more of like someone who, like, do you think maybe, maybe like I know it's weird to say the word gritty now that there's a mascot named after that word, but uh, do you think maybe that's maybe a more accurate way to, to describe him? Like, and not necessarily throwing his weight around or anything like that, but more than Paterka, he's kind of, you know, using his smarts. He scores, scores a lot from in tight, things like that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think that's that's really his bread and butter. And, you know, if we're projecting to the NHL, uh, I mean, that kind of thing, uh, that kind of play, you know, he if he does pan out and he does make it to the NHL, uh, I could see him as a very solid middle six player. Um, you know, maybe... 
you know, a second liner if he really plays well. But, you know, this guy, this kind of guy, uh, you know, with the ability to find space like that, he could fit in with a lot of teams in terms of, you know, filling in a third line role uh, on the wing. And with that kind of speed, if you're a speed oriented team, uh, I think that's a great fit. Yeah. Uh, so Lucas Reichel, I'm going to go through all the, these rankings again from all these websites that list on elite prospects. Uh, he's ranked number 20 by HockeyProspect.com, 48 by Future Considerations, 31 by ISS, 38 by McKean's, uh, 11 for just European skaters from Central Scouting, and 51 by EliteProspects.com. Uh, Paterka, on the other hand, is 14 on HockeyProspect.com, 41 on Future Considerations, 17 by McKean's, 7 uh, for European skaters in Central Scouting. 30 by elite prospects and 24 by consolidated rankings. So all of those, almost all of those except one, have Paterka in the first round. And Reichel, it seems that uh, most of them are on the fringe of the first round and a couple around the middle of the second. Yeah, and I think uh, when it comes to comparing the two players, uh, it's it's really the ceiling with Paterka because you know he he's 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 just there's mo- there's much higher ceiling. Uh, he is he is raw right now. Uh, you know, he has consistency issues, you know, on a game-to-game basis. But, you know, it's the shot. He can. He really has the shot. Uh, he's got the acceleration. He's got the speed. He's got the skating. Uh, and, you know, you, you talked about those defensive issues that they both have. Well, yeah, he's got those too. But, uh, you know, you, you keep saying that he's much more of a flashy player, and I would definitely agree. Uh, and I think when it comes to comparing the two, I think that's what puts him over the top. And that's what I think makes him... Uh, a first-round prospect. I, th- I think if he does make it to the second round in the draft, uh, a team is getting a steal because I said it last week when I talked about William Wallander, uh, you know, you, you really, especially in the first round, you're really trying to swing for the fences. Uh, and, you know, J.D. Perderka, with the skill set that he has, you know, he could be a home run. Yeah, the two, I think the two main knocks that I've seen on Paterka are his defensive game, first of all, and consistency, second. He uh, seems to take uh, a lot of games off, and I think, I mean, as an 18-year-old playing in a professional men's league, even if it is just the, the DEL, which isn't, you know, the highest level in Europe, but that's still a, a really big deal that, uh, it go- honestly, it goes a long way when you have these 18-year-olds that are already proving they can play in a pro league against men. Uh, that's a really valuable th- valuable knowledge to have on a player. So what I was going to say with Paterka, when, you, when you're taking, when those are your two knocks, consistency and defensive game, those are probably, if you have to pick two, two, uh, two knocks to have on a prospect, those aren't bad ones to pick because those are easily, you know, coachable things in terms of the defensive games. And consistency is something that can kind of just improve over time. Uh, naturally. So I think Paterka is definitely someone who should be going off the board in the first round. I think maybe Edmonton, who will probably be picking in the early 20s unless they make a deep run or unless they lose to Chicago. Either way, I think Paterka would be a really good fit in the, with the Oilers. Uh, you know, they've been looking for Oilers, for not Oilers, they've looking for wingers everywhere um, to play with McDavid and Dreisaitl. Uh, they even moved Ryan Nugent Hopkins to the wing. He's probably there full time. Full time. And now they've got Yamamoto, who's made the NHL well, for good now, they acquired Athanasiu and Tyler Ennis. But uh, I think Paterka, the high-skill, high-ceiling player, playing with one of those guys, not to mention the uh, fellow German of Leon Dreisaitl, I think that could be a, a really good fit. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, he would fit great in Edmonton. Uh, and, yeah, I would love to see him there. As you said, those two the two Germans on one team, uh, I don't think I don't know if we've ever seen that. Uh, if so, not, not often. 
but yeah, as you said, those two weaknesses, the consistency and the defense, uh, it, it really is, you know, he, he, other than that, he has all the qualities, uh, especially in the offensive zone. You know, he's got the speed, he's got the shot, uh, and he's got the playmaking ability as well. Uh, so, yeah, you, those two are coachable. I said it last week with Wander. If you trust your development staff, this is a guy absolutely that you should take in the late late first round because, you know, if you, he's, he's a bit of a project given, you know, how raw he is. But if you can figure it out, uh, and if you can figure it out in Edmonton, uh, I mean, watch out. That forward core is something to look out for. As you said, they've been looking for wingers for, for God knows how long. Uh, and, yeah, if they do hit on Paterka, I mean, that's just another addition to that dangerous, uh, you know, that all those high draft picks. Yeah. Uh, all right. So on my uh, ever-changing rankings that uh, that I play around with uh, every week, I currently have John Jason Paterka ranked number 19, which is probably a little bit higher than some, but I'm, I'm really sold on, on players with uh, high offensive ceiling, uh, as you know. And I've got Lucas Ryle, Reichel at number 32, just just one spot outside the first round. Yeah, uh, for me, I've got Paterka maybe, you know, just a touch lower, maybe three three or four, uh, or something like that, spots at around, you know, the high 20s. Uh, and that would certainly be a nice spot for him. If he does fall lower, it's an absolute steal. Uh, for Lucas Reichel... Uh, he really just doesn't he doesn't have the flash right he, he can be a very solid NHL player uh, and I wouldn't be surprised if I saw his name come up in a few years uh, so you know I would put him lower than 32 I would put him you know maybe the high 40s uh, 41 42 43 uh, and I think that would be a, I mean if a team got him there I think it would be a very good pick uh, I wouldn't be surprised if he came up in you know the earlier first round but if I'm a team, if I'm making my rankings, that's probably where he goes, uh, early 40s. Lucas Reichel, I don't know, for whatever reason, maybe it's because it happened with Moritz Seider last year, who was also uh, playing the DEL, was a fellow German. He seems like the kind of guy who might be this year's big shock, high first-round pick, like someone maybe in the top 15 is going to shock the world by selecting Lucas Reichel. I don't know, just gives out those vibes to me. Okay. Anyway, we will see. You never know. These yeah. crazy picks all the time. But uh, I mean, no. If we, if we went to the top fifteen, that would be outrageous. If, if you ask me, uh, I I mean, I don't see what what would what 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 skill would convince a team to take them to the top fifteen. You think? Uh well, teams. Okay. First of all, playing in a men's league is uh, a very valuable thing that probably knocks him up a, a a big chunk. And I mean, if you're just looking at the stats, Lucas Reichel was. I don't have it in front of me anymore, but I think it was 24 points in 42 games, which is half a point a game in a men's league. Uh, that's that's kind of impressive in and of itself. And, I mean, yeah, if I just maybe if just that's not really based on anything. It's just a hunch. Like, if I, if I really wanted to do some sort of deep internal thinking, then maybe I could find the reason why. But, but yeah, that's how I feel. And, I mean, like, players that also that succeed in international tournaments uh, usually get boosted up. Uh, disproportionately and on the other hand players who don't do well kind of get you know bumped down the list uh, more than they should Yaroslav Iskarov comes to mind who I think should still be a top 10 pick but uh, and probably will be but I could definitely see him sliding down on some list just because he didn't do so well at the world juniors and the fact that Reichel did so well in that tournament uh, could maybe have him uh, landing a little bit higher on some list than maybe he otherwise would yeah, you know, I was actually going to mention that the, the World Junior fact and just the inter- international tournaments in general. 
Uh, I think they're overvalued, and I think I think you share that opinion where they do have a disproportionate factor. Uh, and we definitely saw it with both these players. They, they really did shoot up those rankings after playing uh, alongside Tim Stutzler. So, yeah, we'll see. Uh, and, uh, yeah, maybe your, your projection will come true. Your, 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 your hunch uh, will come true. Who knows? I wouldn't count uh, on it. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe we'll, we'll, we'll end up doing a mock draft, right, at some point. Like, uh, oh, of we'll, course, of course. Okay, all right. Uh, and so we'll see where how accurate we both end up doing. But uh, unless you have anything else to add about either of these German players, uh, that I think that wraps it up for our little scouting segment of the week. Yeah, yeah, I think that wraps it up with uh, Paterka and Reichel. Uh, if anyone, I think you mentioned this last week, has any two players that they would like us to profile, then uh, send us a message. Uh, we would be honestly happy to because we don't need to come up with the, the players we're profiling every week. Uh, if you missed it, we profiled William Wallander and Emil Andre last week, two Swedish defensemen. That was our first one. This is our second one. And uh, we'll see what's in store for next week. But uh, before we close out this episode, I have got a trivia for Taisei this week. I made a quiz that was way too long. And so we had to split it up into two different files and two different episodes. So enjoy that separately. Mm-hmm.